There's a lot of talk these days about justice. Everyone's talking about justice. Social justice, economic justice, there's even environmental justice. Got to do justice for the environment. And just so you know, if you put an adjective on the front of justice, what comes out at the other end is not just. It's not justice. What well, is justice? Biblically, justice and righteousness are the same thing. They, they discuss the same thing. To be righteous means that you conform to a standard, that you fit a standard. And that standard is God himself. God is righteous. And his perfect nature is the standard of what it means to be right, what it means to be just. For you and I to be righteous, for you and I to be just, means that we would have to conform to his perfect standard. Just as God always acts according to his perfect standard. And that perfect standard is given to us in his law. Everything God does is according to his law. And that includes how God interacts with people. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. The word here for just, you could translate that as just righteous. It's the same Hebrew word for righteous. And here it's offset with injustice. Injustice ignores the law. It violates the law. Injustice is partial. It's partial to one party. It bends the law in favor of one person while breaking it to the detriment of another. Justice, when we say we need to be just, what we're really saying is we need to treat people the way God's law demands we treat them. And we give to them what the law of God says we are to give. They are to get what the law says not because they've earned it, not because we like them, not because of their social standing, not because they're our friends or our family, not because they have money. We give them what they deserve according to the law because that is what the law demands and we want to be just, which means we are going to obey the law. Justice is at the heart of our passage this morning. This idea of giving to people what they deserve according to the law. It's mentioned three times. Justice is mentioned three times in 12 verses. And as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, Judah was a place where everybody was just and equitable and fair and kind to each other. And some of you are awake this morning. No, no, they weren't. It was a place of great injustice where people did things to each other that were horrible. We saw that the land barons were laying in bed at night, scheming and planning how they can steal homes and property and money from people. We saw last week how the false prophets tried to silence the true prophets like Micah. But they wouldn't address sin. They wouldn't address any of the problems going on. They wouldn't offend anybody. Instead, they preached feel-good messages. And the end result of all of it is God was not pleased. He wasn't happy with what they were doing. And so in Micah 3, God is going to give his response to the injustice in Judah. He's going to give three responses to the injustice of Judah. Let's look at the first one. 
The first response of Yahweh to the injustice, I will not listen. I will not listen. This is in verse 1, Micah 3, verse 1. And I said, hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? Now, first, I want you to note, he says here, and I said, this is Micah speaking, but Micah is a prophet, and he gets his message from who? Yahweh, which means when Micah is saying, and I said, what he's really saying is, I am saying this for Yahweh. He's speaking on behalf of Yahweh. Verse 3, he says, they are my people. Verse 5, he says, thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh. Everything he's about to say is coming from Yahweh. He has a specific message from Yahweh. Verse 1 again, hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. This message is specifically targeted to a group of people. To one group of people. And he says, because this is coming from Yahweh, hear, listen. It's an imperative. It's a command. You must listen to what Yahweh says. Who are these people that he is addressing this to? Specifically, he's talking to the heads and the rulers. The heads and the rulers. The, the word here for head is rosh. It's used to describe men exercising leadership in the military, exercising leadership in homes, in the local tribes. It's often translated as elders. It's also used to describe leaders in a judicial setting. So in a modern context, we would call them judges. J.R. Bartlett says the word head has a clear association with the courts of ancient Israel. These were local rulers who were appointed to lead and to rule and also to mediate disputes. If you had a dispute with your neighbor, you could go to the local ruler, the local judge, and they would determine who wins in your case. And they were supposed to do that according to what the law says. They were supposed to bring justice and equity for people and give people what the law demands they should receive. The first place you see these guys show up is in Exodus 18. You, you remember the story of uh, Moses and his father Jethro? Exodus 18.25, Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. They judged the people at all times, the difficult dispute they would bring to Moses, but every minor dispute they themselves would judge. So they're functioning just like a judge would today. Two people have a dispute and they determine the winner between those two. Back in verse 1, Micah explains a little bit more on these people. He calls them rulers of the house of Israel. Rulers, is, this isn't a separate group of people. This is the same group. Rulers are, is a general term that just refers to anyone in authority, anyone responsible for leading. And so to them, to these judges, to these rulers, people who are supposed to know the law, who are supposed to enforce the law and ensure that people get equity, to these rulers, Micah asks this question. Is it not for you to know justice? You're a ruler. You're a judge. You're supposed to be using the law to bring about justice for other people. Shouldn't you know that? 
Just consider how Moses described these men, these rulers, in Exodus 18. He says, Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place them these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. These are supposed to be God-fearing men who love the truth and who hate dishonest gain. Deuteronomy 1, verse 15, So I took the heads of the tribes, wise and experienced men, and appointed them heads over you, leaders of thousands and of hundreds and of fifties. He took these wise, experienced men who should know the truth, who should love the truth, who should hate dishonest gain. He appointed them as rulers. Verse 16, Then I charged your judges that time, saying, Here are the cases between your fellow countrymen and judge righteously between a man and his fellow countrymen. So you are to judge righteously between your fellow countrymen and the end of the verse, or the alien who is with him. Justice doesn't know anything about nationality, where you're from. It doesn't matter. You still get what the law says. Verse 17, you shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. Doesn't matter who they are, doesn't matter how much power they have, how much money they have. You are to rule according to God's law. Why? Because the end of that verse, for the judgment is God's. When you're sitting as a judge, you're acting on God's behalf. What does this look like when you judge righteously? Isaiah 1, verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's speaking to the same kind of people, rulers and judges. Verse 17, Learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. That's the job of a ruler. Defend those who can't defend themselves. Help those who need help. Love and learn to do good. Seek after justice. Seek after getting everyone what the law demands for them. Do what the law says. Micah says, is it not for you, a judge, to know this? The law was crystal clear. They knew what the law said, but they didn't practice it. Look what Micah says about them. Micah 3, verse 2. You who hate good and love evil. Loving evil and hating good is not justice. As one commentator said, it's perverted justice. It's inverting justice. You're doing the exact opposite of what the law says you should do. Amos 5, verse 15. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. In the gate is where the judges would sit. They were supposed to love good and hate evil. To love evil is to hate and despise God. To hate evil is to love the Lord. Psalm 97 verse 10, hate evil you who love the Lord. And yet these judges who were supposed to bring about justice, who were supposed to do what is right, they love evil. And you want to know how evil and perverted they were? Micah gives an illustration. Look again, chapter 3, verse 2. You who hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones. Micah doesn't 
illustrate these guys as dignified, honorable, well-dressed men. Instead, he pictures them as savage, ruthless animals who rip and tear into their prey. Driven by their desires. And just like if you've ever watched like National Geographic, the predator bites into the little animal. He doesn't care about the little animal. That little animal can make all the noises he wants. He doesn't care. Same thing here. Ezekiel actually called them wolves. Ezekiel 22. Her princes within her are like wolves, tearing the prey by shedding blood and destroying lives in order to get dishonest gain. The verb here, to tear off, refers to taking by violence. It's the same word that was used in Micah 2 to describe robbery. Micah 2, verse 8. Recently, my people have arisen as an enemy. You strip the robe off the garment. There, they describe the greedy land barons who robbed weak people and poor people and took their homes, they took their pasture lands, they took their money and their fine clothes. Here in Micah 3, Micah is not referring to the land barons. Now he's talking about the rulers and the judges. The land barons did the dirty work. They went out there and schemed up the plan. They went out there and executed the plan. And it was the judges and the rulers who gave legal protection and legal justification for the robbery. And when the poor helpless person came to the judge looking for help from the judge, the judge would rule in favor of the land baron and strip away everything these poor people had. Jack Riggs described this idea of stripping. He said, The defenseless Judeans were skinned of property and material possessions to swell the fortunes of those who should have been their protectors. And their greed was insatiable. They would leave nothing. Have you ever been really hungry before? And you go out and get some really good food, let's say like fried chicken, because I love fried chicken. And you're really hungry? How much meat do you leave on the bone? Nothing. You pick it clean. Micah 3, 2. And their flesh from their bones, they get it all. They take everything. They leave nothing behind. They pick the person clean. Zephaniah referred to these guys and called them lions. Again, her princes, her rulers, within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves at evening. They leave nothing for the morning. Once they sink sink their teeth in, there's nothing left. Now, if you thought that illustration was a little graphic, Mike is not done. Not only do they pick the bones clean, verse 3, who eat the flesh of my people, strip off their skin from them, break their bones. He just finished describing them as savage animals who tear into their prey. He described humans that way. Now he recognizes they're human. But only now, he doesn't refer to them as animals. He doesn't illustrate them as animals. Now he relates them to being cannibals. 
who devour and consume not pieces of chicken, but other people. Notice they strip the flesh off who? My people. This is Yahweh speaking. They're devouring and stripping the flesh off the people of God. The apple of God's eye. The psalmist described these men. He uses the same kind of word, but he says in Psalm 14:4, Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread? These rulers looked at the people of Judah and they didn't see people made in the image of God. They saw them like, well, kind of like you saw dinner last night. That plate of food was there to satisfy your desire and to satisfy you. That's how they looked at the people of Judah. The people of Judah are nothing more than our next meal. And they're here for me to devour and to consume and to get everything that I want from them. With no regard for what's good for those people. The land barons did the dirty work. And the rulers and the judges provided the legal justification for them. And they made it appear legal. Micah 3 again. Who eat the flesh of my people, strip off their skin from them, break their bones and chop them up as, as for the pot, and as meat in a kettle. By the way, that last sentence there, it means exactly what it sounds like. The terms there, chop up, pot, and kettle, all mean exactly what it says in English. He's describing them as cannibals. Just like you would take a large animal, cut them up, chop them into pieces, make it manageable, and then put them in a pot. Now, this is a metaphor. He's not actually referring to them as cannibals. It's a metaphor. This is how the rulers, the judges of Judah, treated the people of Judah. Gary Smith, Micah claims that these people are like cooks preparing a meal. The leaders chop up people for stew and throw their flesh in the pot to boil. Pretty graphic, isn't it? Out of all the prophets, Micah is probably one of the most graphic. And he depicts it in very clear, stark language. Bruce Wolke was talking about his language here. He says, our vitriolic prophet does not back off from his macabre figure. He repeats it again and again, detail by detail. He presents the gruesome events individually, each one of which proves that they, the judges and rulers, love evil. They didn't actually eat their neighbors. But he uses this terminology just to prove how much they love evil and hate good. These rulers should have been just. They should have given people what the law demands they give. They should have been lovers of what is good. Instead, they were unjust, cruel, savage tyrants who abused people for their own benefit. Yes. <laughs> yes, they would. They, they would definitely call that hate speech today. Yeah. And I would imagine that when we get into the next section of this little passage, 
that's probably something similar to what people were saying about Micah. They don't want to hear it. But I, I think when you use language like that and you make it that clear, you can't help but offend the people who are doing it. So how does this work? How did their scheme work? How did they pull this off? Well, let's say, um, say you and I had a, a minor economic dispute. I bought something from you, and I thought, well, you didn't give me what I paid for. And so we would go to the gates of the city, and we would go and find a judge, someone who can determine who was right and who was wrong. And I'll make myself the bad guy here. Let's say I was very wealthy. And I can go to the judge and I can say, hey, um, judge, I'll tell you what. I'll write you a really large check if you just rule in my favor. I know what I, what I gave you was not what you paid for. But if you just rule in my favor, I'll give you this nice big check. The land barons would go and strip people of their homes and then go to the judges and pay the judges to rule that it was legal. They would trick people out of their pasture lands, you know, the source of income and food, and then the judges would put the stamp of approval on it. If you were poor, if you were a widow, if you didn't have money, if you didn't have power, if you didn't have influence you would not be heard in the hearing. The judge would not listen to what you had to say. The land baron's money would do all the talking. And the judge would rule in their favor. The court had no time to hear from the helpless, the needy, the poor, or the widow. They were all ignored. Now in the Old Testament, there's a principle of lex talionis. Anybody know what that means? It's a fancy word. Lex talionis. It means the law of retaliation. Not a sinful retaliation. You're going to get back what you give. The punishment will match the crime. God has a message for these rich rulers who are abusing people. Your punishment will match your crime. This was prescribed in the law, Leviticus 24, 19. If a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted upon him. You're going to get exactly what you give. The rulers did not give to the people what they deserved. They helped steal money, they helped steal land, they helped steal loan, homes, they refused to give a hearing to the helpless and the oppressed. And when judgment comes, remember the judgment we looked at in chapter 2? When that judgment comes, these ruthless judges are going to have a problem. Look at verse 4. When that judgment comes, then they, the judges, will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. Instead, he will hide his face from them at that time because they have practiced evil deeds. 
they will cry. The term here is used to describe someone crying out in distress, crying out for help. It's used again in Judges 6.6, speaking of Israel when God had brought judgment on them. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. They cried out because they have nothing else they can do. They have no power to help themselves. And in Israel's past, Yahweh had always been a source of protection, someone they could run back to and he would deliver them. He was always a source of aid to them. If you remember back in Exodus, when they were in Egypt, Exodus 2, verse 23, Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out. There's our word. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God, hearing their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Crying out to Yahweh was an effective way to help deliver you from whatever you were facing. And when this judgment comes, when Assyria comes into the land, and later when the Babylonians come in, these rulers are going to cry out to Yahweh and ask the judge of the universe to help them. Yahweh will um, know that they're praying. He's going to know that they're crying out, looking for help, just like the judges knew that the poor people were crying out for help. He's just not going to listen. It's like they're going to be bouncing their prayers off the ceiling. Bruce Wolke, but when God judges these heartless magistrates, he will be as heartless as they had been toward the oppressed who had called out to them for help. So how could God refuse to answer them? How could God turn a blind eye to their, their troubles? Look at verse 4 again, very end of the verse. Because they have practiced evil deeds. They had forsaken the covenant. They turned away from Yahweh. And now he's going to give them justice. He's going to give them what the law demands they receive. The law said if you turn from Yahweh, he's going to turn from you. He's going to bring judgment upon you. Jeremiah said that God, when God brings a disaster on them, he will not listen. Jeremiah 11, 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am bringing disaster on them, which they will not be able to escape. Though they cry to me, yet I will not listen to them. And Jeremiah is writing roughly 100 years after Micah. So you could say, well, maybe, maybe Judah didn't know. Well, no, because even in the law, Deuteronomy 31, verse 17, the anger then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them. To hide his face from them is to say he's not going to hear them. They're not going to have an audience with God. He's not going to listen to them. Look, don't think that you can turn away from God, that you can run headlong into your sin, that you can ignore his demands for holiness his demands for righteousness, that you can just abuse the people around you and mistreat them and be unjust 
and then turn back to Yahweh and say, oh, Yahweh, please help me. And that he's going to come to your aid and do everything you need for you, do everything you want him to do. That is not how God works. That turns God into a genie. Proverbs 1, verse 27, when your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. When God brings his discipline, merely crying out for deliverance won't help. God will not hear your cries. He will not regard your tears. He does not listen to the prayers of hearts that are filled with sin. I don't have this verse on my slide, but it's Psalm 66, 18. Psalm 66, 18. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. There is a New Testament equivalent of this. Speaking of people in authority who are abusive to the people under them. If you're in any position of authority, God has put people under you as a stewardship. And if you mistreat them, God's going to be just as displeased with you as he was with Judah. And just like Judah, God will refuse to answer your prayers. In the New Testament, Peter talks about how a husband treats his wife. And he commands that you are to live with her in an understanding way. I don't have time to go through what that means. 1 Peter 3, 7, I just want you to see the last part of this. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. A husband who does not have a right horizontal relationship with his wife, who is abusive or unjust to his wife, can bounce his prayers right off the ceiling. God doesn't want to hear it. These unjust rulers will face judgment. And when that judgment comes, God will not hear a word they have to say. How can you? Let's say you, you have been doing that. If he doesn't listen to the prayers of people who do this, what do you do? Repent. 1 Peter 3, verse 11. He must turn away from his evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Mike is bringing this, this message to them in the hope that they would repent, not merely so that they cry out and try to avoid the judgment that they're due. The first response of Yahweh, I will not listen. Second response, I will not speak, and I will not, I will not speak. This is out of verse 5. Thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. Micah returns back to the same group of people we looked at last week, to the false prophets. So let's put them in the mix here. How do they fit in? The land barons did the dirty work. They did the scheming and the planning, and they're the ones who initiated the plan to remove and steal from people. The rulers provided the legal force and credibility for it. And the false prophets gave the entire enterprise theological backing. 
and they pronounce the blessing of God upon it. See how they've got this covered from all three angles? These prophets were supposed to be guys who spoke for Yahweh. And just like Micah, their words were supposed to be Yahweh's words. Zechariah uh, Zechariah 1, verse 6, But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, "As as, As the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. My words came to you through who? The prophets. And yet these men did not speak for God. They did not speak for Yahweh. He was not the one motivating their message. What was motivating them? Greed. Pure greed. And in their pursuit of their desires, they told a bunch of lies. They lied over and over and over. Isaiah 9, verse 15. The head is the elder and honorable man, and the prophet who teaches falsehood is the tail. For those who guide this people are leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are brought into confusion. Leading people astray, confusing people, lying to people, saying, God is speaking to me, here's God's message. And they're doing all of it so they can get money, so they can become wealthy. Jeremiah gives a little more information. Jeremiah 23, 14. Also among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. The committing of adultery and walking in falsehood. And they strengthen the hands of evildoers. So that no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them have become to me like Sodom and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. These prophets were supposed to be living a holy and righteous life. And yet they're committing adultery. And notice... They strengthen the hands of evildoers. That would be the judges and the land barons. And how do they strengthen their hand? By refusing to preach against the sin. And so no one turns back. No one hears a demand for holiness. No one hears a demand for righteousness and justice. What God actually wants them to hear, nobody hears it. As we saw last week, they have no interest in offending sinners. No interest in speaking out against injustice. And in Micah 3, the sin that needs to be addressed is the cruelty and the injustice of the land barons and the judges. And yet these false prophets say nothing about it. And in fact, not only do they not say anything about it, they do the exact opposite. Micah 3, 5 again. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. Let me go to that first sentence there. When they, that would be the people, have something, that would be for the prophet, to bite with their teeth. When the people bring something that will satisfy the desires of the prophet, is what he's saying. The term here for bite refers to physically biting. But interestingly enough, I think Micah's using some word games again because this word is only used to describe a serpent biting. It was used in Numbers 21, verse 5. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people. There's the same word, to bite. Here's the idea. You go to the prophet 
and you want to hear a message from God. And let's just say you were that little farmer, that, that rich land baron, stole your pasture lands in your home, and then you went to the judges, and the judge was paid off by the rich land baron, and the judge said, legal, and dismissed your case. And so you go to the prophet, now that you're poor, homeless, and broke. And you go to the prophet to ask the prophet, what does God say about all this? And he turns around and gives you a 30-minute sermon on tithing. And teaches you about sowing a seed and reaping a harvest. He talks to you about giving to his ministry will unlock the treasures of heaven. Sound familiar? And if you just send a little money to his ministry, God will bless you. This was the key to God's smile. Make the prophet rich. Notice verse 5. They cry peace. When you pay them enough, they pronounce all this good stuff for you. God's going to bless you. You're going to have wealth and health and happiness and peace. And Dale Ralph Davis described it this way. If you were to butter them up and stump up their shekels from your money market account, there was a prosperity gospel for you. The prophet's eyes would light up and he would exclaim, something good is going to happen to you. Now, what he's not saying here is he's not attacking the idea that those who teach and preach the Word of God their entire lives shouldn't be able to make a living off it. There's a right way for prophets, pastors, teachers to be paid. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Double honor there would refer to monetary compensation. You know that because the next part of this, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Those who give their lives to teaching and preaching should be compensated for, for uh, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 14, so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. New Testament is very clear. It is right to pay people to spend their lives studying and, and delivering the word of God. And even in the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament, prophets would receive pay for their work. When you went to the prophet, you would pay him. I have a couple of examples. First uh, Samuel 9, verse 7. Then Saul said to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? Speaking the man of God. For the bread is gone from our sack, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? If we're going to go to him, we need to bring him something. This is how he lives. It is only right for us to pay him in some way. 2 Kings 8, starting in verse 7, Then Elisha came to Damascus. Elisha was the prophet. Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, was sick, and it was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. The king said to Hazael, Take a gift in your hand and go to meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Will I recover from the sickness? I want to hear a message from Yahweh. I'm going to go to the prophet. I'm going to bring the prophet a gift. This is how the prophet lived. Micah is not attacking that principle. He's not saying that shouldn't be done. What he is saying, though, is that these false prophets were not actually hearing from God. And what would happen if you were that poor, helpless little farmer who had everything stolen from you, 
and you went to the prophet for a word from God, and you couldn't pay him. You know, because the land baron and the judges just took everything you own, and you had nothing to give to the prophet, what would happen then? Micah 3, verse 5 again. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace, but against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. If you had nothing, if you had already been stripped of everything you owned, and you went to the prophet for a message from God, and you had nothing to give them, they declare holy war. Holy wars, even in that time, were fought against infidels. You fought against people who hated God, who rejected Yahweh. And so if you were abused and stripped of everything you owned, and you went to the prophet and couldn't pay him, they would turn around and tell you, well, if you can't pay me, you must be a hater of God. You must be an infidel. You're a traitor to Yahweh, because if Yahweh really loved you, you wouldn't be so poor. God spoke of these people in Isaiah 56. He said this, His watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs, unable to bark. Dreamers lying down who love to slumber. And the dogs are greedy. They are not satisfied. And they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each one to his unjust gain, to the last one. Come, they say, let us get wine and let us drink heavily of strong drink. And tomorrow will be like today, only more so. Just driven by their own desire. And they're using God as a way to achieve what they want. God hates this. And through Micah, he's going to give his response. Micah 3, verse 6, Therefore, it will be night for you, without vision, and darkness for you, without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets, and the day will become dark over them. Vision here refers to the work of the eyes. It talks about being able to see. But here, because it's connected to prophecy, it would refer to being able to see visions, revelatory visions. Divination is a very broad word. It's a very general term used to describe giving prophecy. And it's used to describe both true and false prophecy. Micah here is not saying that the false prophets actually had visions from God and actually heard from God. He's not saying that. What he's saying is this. There's coming a day when judgment will come. And these guys will be exposed as charlatans and fakes. And when that day comes, when judgment comes, all their false prophecies of peace will vaporize. And they will have nothing left to say. They'll have no insights. They'll have no way to explain why the nation is going through what it's going through. They'll have no new revelations to give. They'll have no more feel-good messages. They won't be able to go to the law and twist the law anymore to try to prove their false theology. They would have only night. Micah says, and the day will become dark over them. Dark refers to a sense of gloom. 
a time of calamity without divine guidance or comfort? Is the idea of the word? God is going to be silent. He has nothing to say to them. His word will be useless to them. Even if they cry out, jump up and down, hoop and holler and scream and shout, it doesn't matter what they do. They can go through all the rituals in the world. God still will not respond to them. Anyone have a metaphor of that in the Old Testament? You know, prophets trying to get a God to respond to them. Baal and Elijah. Baal and Elijah, 1 Kings 18, 26. Then they, that would be the false prophets, took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they leaped about on the altar which they had made. Well, this is the solution. If, if Baal won't answer us, we just jump up and down and scream and hoop and holler. Verse 28. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out. No one answered and no one paid attention. No one answered because, well, Baal doesn't actually exist. All the hooping and the hollering wasn't going to do anything. All the cutting themselves wasn't going to do anything. And the same is true for these false prophets in the day of judgment. They can go through all the hooping and hollering and cutting themselves and go through every ritual they can come up with. And it's not going to matter. God has nothing to say to them. And they will be without God's voice. Can you imagine what that's going to be like for these false prophets in that day? To be utterly exposed as a fraud in front of everybody. If you want to know what that's like, Micah 3, verse 7. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners will be embarrassed. Indeed, they will all cover their mouths because there is no answer from God. Seers and diviners is just talking about people who see visions and who prophesy. They will be embarrassed. They will be ashamed and embarrassed. The word ashamed here refers to the awareness of the repulsion with which society treats unacceptable forms of behavior. They'll know that all of society is repulsed by them. He also says they'll be embarrassed. These two words... Ashamed and embarrassed are often found in parallel. Uh, the second word, embarrassed, just amplifies the first. Embarrassed, the basic idea concerns the loss of self-possession through humiliation, embarrassment, or confusion. The easiest way I can help you understand what the second word, embarrassment, means, here's how the NASB translates this word. Humiliated, shamed, disgraced, ashamed, embarrassed, confounded, and abased. They're not going to be feeling so great. He describes their humiliation another way. Into verse 7, notice he says, indeed, they all cover their mouths. They all cover their mouths. This comes from the ancient practice of leprosy. When you were a leper, you were forbidden to be anywhere near other people. You were forbidden inside the temple. And so if you were approaching another person, you had to cover your mouth and you had to shout, unclean, unclean, and so they would all stay away from you because you were an outcast from the society. That comes out of Leviticus 13.45 for the second time. I'm not going to read it. These false prophets would become ceremonially unclean. And in their shame, they would have, can only do one thing, which is cover their mouth. Why? 
Why are they going to be ashamed? Because there is no answer from God. They're going to be proven to be false prophets. God is not speaking to them. They've been lying to people. That's the false prophets. Verse 8. On the other hand, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel. Now Micah says, okay, those are the false prophets. Here's what a true prophet looks like. And he points to himself. On the other hand, he's going to contrast false prophets with himself. They were false. He is genuine. They were filled with greed. Micah is filled with power. His ministry was empowered by God, not his own will or efforts. The prophets were motivated by favoritism. Micah was motivated by the Spirit of God. He didn't desire the glory of his friends. He desired the glory of Yahweh. They were unjust. Micah preached and practiced justice. They were cowardly and refused to tell people about sin. Micah, as you've seen, didn't really care if they were offended by it. He was courageous. And the whole point of his warning was so that people would repent and they would turn from it. Those are the first two responses. I will not listen. I will not speak. Last one. I will not remain. Verse 9. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and twist everything. This one's going to go pretty quick because he's going to go over ground he's already covered here. The first half of this verse repeats verse 1. He turns back now to the judges, the rulers. In verse 1, he said they hate good and love evil. Here he says they abhor justice. Abhor refers to being repulsed by it. Doing the right thing, giving to others what they are owed, treating them fairly according to the law, they hate that. They want nothing to do with it. Instead, they twist everything that is straight. Any law, any ordinance, any provision, anything that can be used for their benefit, no matter how good it is, they will twist it for their own benefit. Any circumstance, whether it comes about or they bring it about, that they can manipulate to satisfy their greed, they'll do it. They love it. Nothing is too sacred for them not to twist and to use to rob others. And that even includes if someone has to die for it. Notice verse 10. Who builds Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Zion is just another way to refer to Jerusalem. Micah doesn't get specific on what he's referring to here by bloodshed. The term here refers to violence. He could be talking about the the violence of the land barons and extorting and robbing people and their mafia-like tactics. He could also be referring to the brutal use of building projects like Hezekiah building a really thick wall or building his tunnel. And he wants the project to get done so much that he doesn't care how many people die and get injured in the process. Jeremiah seems to combine both of these ideas in Jeremiah 22. He says, Woe to him who builds his house without righteousness and his upper rooms without justice. Notice he's talking about justice and building projects together. 
who uses his neighbor's services without pay and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a roomy house with spacious upper rooms and cut out its windows, paneling it with cedar and painting it bright red. They can be unjust in their building practices. 22 verse 17, But your eyes and your heart are intent only upon your own dishonest gain and on shedding innocent blood and on practicing oppression and extortion. So here he takes all three of these ideas, the idea of building and justice and shedding blood. And so I think Micah could very well be doing the same thing. His point is not a specific kind of injustice, just that their injustice results in people dying. And it didn't matter where you went in Judah. Everybody was involved. Verse 11, her leaders pronounced judgment for a bribe. Her leaders would be the judges, the rulers. Just pay them. They'll do what you want. Verse 11, again, her priests instruct for a price and her prophets divine for money. The priests are the guys in the temple who should be teaching the law. And if you don't like a specific teaching, you just go and pay them and they'll change it. It's like theology on demand. You get whatever you want. Even the false prophets did the same. And just like the false prophets, just like the false leaders today who twist and distort God's word to bilk gullible and desperate people out of their money, these false prophets also feign piety. Uh, chapter 3, verse 11, that Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. Oh, sure, we're abusing people. Sure, we're breaking His law every chance we get. Sure, we're killing people for our own greedy desires, but Yahweh won't leave us. We're the covenant people of God. Why would they say that? Because they looked up at the top of the mountain and they saw the temple sitting there. And in their mind, if the temple was there, God must be here. Oh, and look how rich I am, and look how well I'm doing, and God must be pleased. And so he must be in my midst. He must be here. Well, Yahweh had a response to that too. Verse 12, Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed. On account of you refers to the rulers, the priests, the prophets, the land barons. On account of you, Zion will be plowed. Jerusalem will be plowed like a field. Any farmers in the room? Can you plow a field with a whole bunch of trees on it? Can you plow a field with buildings on it? Can you plow a field with boulders in the middle of it? The only way you can plow Zion is if you level it and remove it. It's the only way it can happen. And it's not just the city. Micah 3.12 again. And the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. Um, the land the temple sitting on is going to go back to being forest land. And by the way, the term he uses here for high place is the same term they use for the high places of Baal and Ashtaroth. Micah's just saying the religious system that's invaded the temple is pagan. God would not remain in their midst forever. God wasn't in their midst at that point. They were just deceiving themselves. And he was going to show them that he wasn't in their midst by wiping out the temple. Micah preached this roughly 100 years before Jeremiah lived. And yet Jeremiah spoke about this preaching. Micah's preaching here, while graphic, was very effective. Because this judgment did come. It came when the Assyrians invaded Jerusalem, or invaded Judah. We looked at that in chapter 2. 
And a hundred years later, Jeremiah wrote this. Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus the Lord of hosts has said, Zion will be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem will become ruins, and the mountains of the house of the high places of a forest. He quotes Micah 3.12. What was the effect of Micah's preaching? What was the effect of this little sermon that Micah gives? Jeremiah 28.19. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death, speaking of putting to death Micah? Did he not fear the Lord and treat the favor of the Lord? And the Lord changed his mind about the misfortune which he had pronounced against them. But we are committing a great evil against ourselves. Micah's preaching of this message resulted in Hezekiah repenting, turning from his sin, and trusting in Yahweh. And so Yahweh delivered the nation from that judgment. Now, ultimately, the the judgment would fall roughly 200 years after that when the Babylonians came in. But the preaching worked. They repented. If you have questions, feel free to come and see me. Let me pray real quick, and we will be done. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for prophets like Micah, who come and warn of sin, warn of judgment. We know that's an act of your grace, that you warn us about judgment, even though you tell us over and over again in your word about sin and the danger of sin. And yet here you show your grace and your mercy and that you still give warnings. You still give people the opportunity to repent. And so we thank you for that grace. We ask that you would help us to repent of our sin, to turn from our wickedness and turn to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.